Well, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 16. John 16, we are returning to the Gospel of John after a pretty long break. Um, We uh, took, I think, three or four weeks off, but uh, this morning we are returning to the upper room where Christ has been with his disciples, preparing them for his cross and for the time he is away. A way of review, uh, last time we were together, we looked at John 15, verses 18 through 16, verse 4. And uh, there, Jesus was teaching his disciples that they are going to be left in the world as his representative witnesses. Christ is going away. They are going to be left to represent Christ in the world. And as this, they are going to be hated by the world, just as Christ was hated by the world. And that passage culminated in in chapter 16 with Jesus' words of warning about the real persecutions that disciples will experience in the world. Disciples must remember they will not be spared from the world's hate and persecutions in this life. But in the face of that grave reality, Jesus has not left his disciples without help. And this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 16, verses 4 through 11. And in these verses, Jesus is again going to point his disciples to the gift and ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the primary ways Jesus has been seeking to comfort and strengthen his disciples, is by teaching them about the Holy Spirit what the Spirit would do, who he is, why that gift is so significant, who will come when Jesus departs. And we've already seen a number of texts about the Spirit. This morning we will see yet another one. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus wants to give us two reasons. The coming of the Spirit is good news for disciples left in a hostile world. Two reasons the coming of the Spirit is good news for disciples left in a hostile world. So how would you answer that question? Why is the Spirit good news for you as a disciple of Christ? Especially as you're left in a hostile world. Why is that good news? Is it good news? Well, I hope by the end of this morning you will be able to answer that question. The first reason we get, I did not pass out the outline, did I? Where is my outline? (laughs) I guess you don't get an outline this morning. Did I uh, leave them up there? Just realized I didn't have them. Oh, well. Lord must want you to look at the screen. Huh? I don't think it's in my bag because I was digging around in there this morning. So we'll just uh, use the screen here. I'll bring them next week if you want a copy. So first lesson we get is in verses 4 to 7 which tell us that the paraclete will be a gift far better than Christ's continuing presence on earth. So this is not the first time that Jesus has made this point that the gift of the Spirit will be something better than had Christ remained on earth. He made this same point back in chapter 14. If you remember way back there, we were there a couple months ago, which emphasized that the gift of the Spirit is so significant Because as the Spirit comes, we will experience the abiding presence of God to an even greater degree. 
God's presence will no longer be located in the temple, but within each disciple. That's why it's so significant that Christ goes, that the Spirit comes. A new age will be ushered in where we will experience the presence of God more intimately than had ever been experienced before. So that's the point Jesus made back in chapter 14. And this morning he's going to give us another reason why it is better that Jesus goes away and that the Spirit comes. The gift of the Spirit is very, very good news for disciples left to endure the world's hate as Christ's witnesses. And Jesus goes here because the departure of Christ has filled his disciples with mingled, I'm sorry, misguided sorrow. Look at verse 4. Second half of verse 4, Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus says that he did not say these things to his disciples from the beginning. So what are the these things that he gives us? Well, Jesus is referring to the hatred of the world and the persecutions that are coming on his disciples. And Jesus says that he did not teach these things to his disciples from the beginning of his ministry. He's taught them many things over the course of these three years, but not until now, just hours before his departure, is he teaching the disciples about these things, the persecutions that are coming. But why not earlier? Well, Jesus says it's because I was with you. And as we see through the Gospel of John, he's been with his disciples, and as he's been with them, he's really borne the brunt of the world's hate himself. He has relatively shielded the disciples from the world's hate. It's all gone on on him. I'll give you an example. We, we, we see even in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers come to arrest Christ, and he answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. He protected and shielded his disciples into the end, but that's all about to change. Look at what he says next in verse 5. He says, but now I am going to the one who sent me. He's returning to the Father. And as Jesus returns to the Father, the, the disciples are going to be left in the world without Christ's presence. That means they're going to be directly exposed now to the world's hate. And that's why he tells them this. And look at how the disciples respond to these words. Verse 6. But because I said these, I'm sorry, verse 5, the end of verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now that's interesting. Because the disciples actually did ask Jesus that very question just earlier. Go back to chapter 13. Peter asks him in verse chapter 13, verse 36, the exact question. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And down in verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So what does Jesus mean here? None of you asks me, where are you going? I think Jesus simply means that the disciples are no longer wrestling with that question. Jesus answered Peter's question. He answered Thomas's question. 
Over these two chapters, he has told them clearly he is going back to the Father. And so they're no longer wrestling with that question, is what Jesus means. They have something else that they are struggling with instead. What is it? Look at verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. In other words, the issue at hand is not their confusion as to where Jesus is going. They know that now. But now it's their response of sorrow. Jesus' announcement that he is leaving and that they're going to be left in a hostile world has produced sorrow in their hearts. The idea of this word here is not just disappointment, but deep grief, pain, distress, anxiety. Later in this chapter, Jesus uses the same word for a woman when her hour to give birth has, has come. The idea of distress or agony. And that's how disciples feel here. This sorrow is what Jesus is going to target in the following verses because it is misguided sorrow. It's inappropriate sorrow. They should not be sorrowing like this. This sorrow reveals a significant misunderstanding on their part concerning Christ's departure and what it will mean for them. So that's why Christ is about to teach them what he is. They have sorrowed, but they should not. And that brings us to verse 7, which explains that the departure of Christ is actually good news because the gift of the paraclete depends on it. Look at verse 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He says, it's to your advantage that I depart. Literally, it is better for you. It is to be preferred that I go away. Christ, the disciples' Lord and teacher and Messiah and protector is going away. And the disciples are going to be left in a hostile world. And Jesus says, that is better That's to be preferred. It's better than that I should remain. In other words, he's not leaving his disciples with second best. He's not leaving you with second best. Whereas the truly best would have been that he remained with us. No. It's better this way. This is actually good news. It should not result in anxious sorrow and distress, but with joy and confidence and a sense of abundant goodness that's in store for us because of it. But how so? What could be better than Christ's physical presence with us now on earth? What do you think? Jesus tells us in the rest of the verse. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's better that Jesus departs, because if he does not depart, the Spirit will not come. The Spirit is the paraclete. The, the helper. This is the fourth paraclete passage in the, in the upper room. Jesus has been the disciples' paraclete. The idea is the paraclete is one who comes alongside to help. He's been with the disciples, helping them throughout his ministry. But now he's going and he's going to send another paraclete in his place to be with them. And Jesus says, that's better. 
That leads to a couple questions, doesn't it? Why does the Spirit come only after Christ returns to glory? Why does Jesus have to go away for the Spirit to come? And why is that better? Let's try to answer those. Look back at chapter 7. I'm going to do a little more turning because I don't have my... I'm sorry, I do have these on the screen. I forgot. You just don't have a, uh, a thing. So here's the first question. Why does the uh, Spirit come only after Christ returns to glory? Look at chapter 7, verse 38 to 39. Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, the Spirit would only and could only come once Christ returned to glory with the Father. Well, why? Well, because Christ's return to glory signaled that he had accomplished redemption completely through his cross and resurrection. This verse doesn't mean that the old, in the Old Testament the Spirit wasn't working. He was. It just means that the Spirit will not be given in this new way to indwell his people and then to come to empower them in this new covenant way that Christ is promising The gift of the Spirit is what Christ secured as he died on the cross and atoned completely for sin and satisfied the Father's righteous judgment. Chapter 17, verses 4 to 5, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And now, because of what Christ accomplished, all of God's promises of the new covenant age have been secured and ushered in. In other words, Christ's return to the Father signals that a new age has begun. An age in which God's purposes have been fulfilled. Sin has been completely atoned for. The kingdom has been inaugurated. The cross, resurrection, and glorification of Christ are essential events in order for this new stage of God's plan of redemption to come to pass. And until that happens, it will not come. The Spirit will not come. He must be glorified, having accomplished all the Father's purposes. So that's the answer to the first question. What about the second question? Why is the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, better than Christ remaining on earth? And the answer is that this age was long anticipated in the Old Testament. Today is the first day of Advent uh, for those of you who celebrate Advent for, for Christmas. And the first Sunday of Advent celebrates the prophecy, the anticipation in the Old Testament for Messiah and what he would accomplish. The Old Testament looked forward to a time when God's spirit would be poured out on his sin cursed world to renew it, to reverse the curses that were placed on it, to transform dead humanity into a new people filled with life. And that would only come through Messiah. Look at a few texts here. This age was long expected, what Christ is promising here. 
Jesus is talking about, uh, Isaiah is talking about the deserted city. All of this is judgment language, dens forever, pasture of flocks until the spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Isaiah 44 down halfway through Isaiah says for quoting the Lord for I will pour water on the thirsty ground and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. It was the age expected that the spirit would be poured out to renew God's creation, transform humanity. Or Ezekiel 36 in verse 26, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit is what Israel desperately needed. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone, divine heart surgery from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what Israel and the world so desperately needed. Without it, we and they are a dry barren land, dead. And fruitless towards God. But one day God would pour out his spirit on a massive scale. It would result in wide scale transformation of the heart. And regeneration. That's what Ezekiel 36 is about. And regeneration was certainly in the Old Testament. Right? You can't believe unless you're caused to be born again. But the point is, is it was just the remnant. It wasn't experienced very widespread. But the hope was that one day the spirit would be poured out such that there would be wide scale transformation of heart, wide scale returning and regeneration. And it would come with spirits poured out. And Jesus is teaching the disciples that that age is about to dawn. Their sorrow is misguided. The coming of the paraclete is the fulfillment of the long-anticipated promises of the new covenant age. But that age will not dawn unless Christ accomplishes redemption and returns to glory. And when he does, he'll be far better. So that's the first reason why the departure of Christ and the coming of the Spirit is good news. I like how D.A. Carson writes it when he says, Before the triumphant inbreaking of God's saving reign, before the inauguration of the new covenant, millions ignored the claims of the true God. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit, transformed that limitation, and millions have been brought to happy submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and to growing obedience by the power of the Spirit whom he bequeathed. It is better that Christ return for just this reason. But that leads to the next reason why it's good news. Just what will the Spirit do when he comes? How will the Spirit assist Christ's disciples? How will the Spirit do this work in the Old Testament through Christ's disciples in the world? And that brings us to verses 8 through 11. The paraclete will assist disciples by his ministry of convicting the world. So these verses now zoom in to the specific activity of the Spirit, what he's going to do in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises 
but specifically through his Christ's disciples. Look at verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 8 tells us that when the paraclete comes, one of his primary ministries will be his work of convicting the world. This word convict has a couple of nuances in the original. One is the idea of convincing. He will convince the world about its sin. But there's more. Because the problem with the world is not just intellectual. The world doesn't just need intellectual convincing. It goes deeper than that. To convict is not just to convince. It's also to bring something to light to somebody's shame. So look at chapter 3, verse 20. It's exactly what the world does not want to happen. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light of Christ and does not come to the light so that his works should not be exposed. That's the exact same word, convicted, brought to light so that they own it and know it and be shamed for it. So we can define convict as bringing someone to a self-conscious recognition of guilt. What does it mean that the Spirit will convict? He will bring someone to a self-conscious recognition of guilt. We see this meaning plainly, actually, in chapter 8, verse 46. The exact same phrase is used, but of Jesus. Jesus is speaking. He says, which of you convicts me of sin, very similar to our verse. In other words, which of you is able to expose sin in my life to convince me of my guilty state? And clearly nobody could do that for Christ because Christ was sinless, right? But this is just the Spirit's work. It's what he will do for the world. Look at our verse again. When he comes, he will convict Bring the world to a self-conscious recognition of guilt. And he'll do it for the world. Now, I'll ask you again. I've asked you many times, what is the world? How have we defined it? The world is not just this place we live, but a system uh, that operates outside. Excellent. Excellent. It's a system. We've said it's the system of rebellious humanity. Humanity and rebellion to its maker. That's where all of you once lived. The world. Throughout John, we discover the world hates Christ. The world is ruled by Satan. The world does not know God. The world's works are evil. And Christ's ministry, throughout Christ's ministry, it aimed at convicting the world of its Sin. So we see in John 7, 7, Jesus says that I testify about it, that its works are evil. Why did Christ do that? It was a ministry of love, wasn't it? Jesus did not come to convict the world to drag it off to final judgment. That's what we would expect. Come up, expose it, boom, nail them to the wall, you're done. John 3.17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Oh, he came to convict the world 
but not for final judgment, but so that the world might be saved through him. That was the purpose of Christ's ministry. But now he's going away and the spirit's going to come and continue that same ministry, a ministry of love for the salvation of the world. And this brings massive hope because most people did not respond to Christ when he was on earth, did they? There was wide-scale rejection and unbelief, but the hope is that with the coming of the Spirit, that's going to be changed and that many are going to be brought out from the world, just like you were, to faith in Christ. We'll look down now at verses 9 through 11. These verses will unpack the, the ministry of the Spirit described in, in verse 8. <clears throat> so verse 8 says, When the Spirit comes, the Helper comes, He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And now we're going to learn about each of these individually. And Jesus will tell us what He will convict the world for, and then He will give us a reason why the Spirit will do that. So let's look at these one at a time. Verse 9 says the Spirit convinces the world of its sin because the world failed to believe Christ's witness. Look at verse 9. He will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The Spirit will work to make the world know and be conscious of the guilt and shame of its sin. It's directed towards an evil world. It's a ministry of love. And it's aimed at bringing the world to know its shame so that it would turn to Christ. But how would the Spirit do that? I think the context makes it clear He does it through you. He does it through faithful disciples who are witnesses and speak the words of Christ. Look back at verse 27 of chapter 15. Jesus speaking to the apostles saying, and you also will bear witness. They will transmit the words of Christ because they have been with Christ from the beginning. The apostles are witnesses as they transmit the word of Christ, particularly in inspired scripture. And you bear witness as you transmit the words of the apostles. That's what disciples do. And it will certainly attract the world's hate. Look back at verse 20. Remember I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That is what will draw the world's hate to you. You will testify about Christ. But this verse says that the Spirit will also be working and will be convicting, convincing the world through your testimony. Bringing the world to recognition of its guilt, which is why the last part of verse 20 is true. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. There's hope. Some are going to keep your word of testimony. It will be because a powerful spirit is working in and through you. But why will the spirit do this? Look back at verse 9. He will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The world, during Christ's ministry, did not believe in him. If they did, they would have received his words about their sinful condition, right? They would have received his words about their guilt, but they didn't. 
And so, since the world failed to heed the words of Christ and believe in him for salvation when he was on earth, the Spirit will now come graciously and in abundant mercy to continue this ministry of convicting the world for its sin. I think that's what Jesus means here. The very condition of the world hinders it from owning its guilt. But the Spirit has come to do what we could not do. Apart from this work, none of us would be saved. But because of this gracious work, there's much hope for this dark world. There's much hope for the lost people that are around us. And if you're a believer, it's because the Spirit did this gracious work in your life. He pressed on you the conscious reality of sin and guilt, leading you to look to Christ alone for your only hope. That's the confidence we should carry into this world that hates us. Into this world that hates Christ, the Spirit, the same Spirit that was on Christ, powerfully works to convict the world of sin. That's not all. Look at verse 10, what else the Spirit does. The Spirit convinces the world of its pseudo-righteousness because Christ is no longer present to assist his disciples in this task. So look at verse 10. It says, He'll convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, this verse is a bit tricky because we might be tempted to think that righteousness here refers to Christ's righteousness or or something like that. But it's important that we see that all three of these verses are parallel to each other, right? And so that's going to direct us how we interpret. Just as the Spirit brings the world to a self-conscious sense of shame of its sin, so too the Spirit will bring the world to a self-conscious sense of shame of its righteousness. Hmm, that's interesting. What's wrong with the world's righteousness? Why does the world need to be convicted of that? Well, one of the main hindrances in this gospel that kept the Jews from believing in Christ was their misguided perception of their own righteousness. They had empty, superficial, shallow righteousness, and they were content with that. And Jesus came to expose that. We see it in the empty temple system. They had this elaborate temple, and it was empty of true worship. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel, and he was ignorant of something as basic as the new birth. The Jews are careful to keep the Sabbath, all the while rejecting Christ who fulfills the Sabbath. They claim they rely on the writings of Moses and seek to kill the one Moses wrote about. They have superficial righteousness woefully insufficient and empty. See, part of conversion, turning to Christ, involves not only the recognition of your sins, but also the recognition, confession of, and turning from your righteousness. It involves recognizing not just that I have a few sins in my life, but a recognition that Everything in my life, down to all the deeds of my righteousness, are filthy rags, woefully insufficient, and stained by sin. The best thing you ever did as an unbeliever merited your condemnation. 
Because it wasn't done with a heart of faith. It wasn't done to the glory of God alone. Before you were saved, any righteousness you had was superficial. Not the true kind that God demanded. Conversion involves not only conviction of my sin, but the conviction of the emptiness and worthlessness of my righteousness. And until it does, I will not look to Christ alone. But when the paraclete comes, he will convict the world about its false, empty righteousness. But why will the Spirit do this work? Look at the rest of verse 10. Jesus says, it's because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. You see, so long as Christ was on earth, his mission consisted in exposing the pseudo-righteousness of the world. But now he's going. He says, you disciples will see me no longer. The point is he'll no longer be with his disciples to help them in this mission of convicting the world of its false righteousness. But he will send the paraclete to be with them to do this work. So how does the Spirit do that practically? What role do you play in that, in that process? And we've already noted your role as witnesses to Christ, right, as you speak his word. But I think there's something else. The Spirit does this work not only through your words, but through your lives, through your lives of selfless, Christ-like love. Lives which are characterized by true righteousness. A righteousness not of your own power, not a superficial righteousness, a true righteousness. And that primarily looks like a life of love for one another. Listen to First John. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Look where John goes. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. As as believers live transformed lives of self-denying, Christ-centered others-focused, God-glorifying, spirit-depending love that the world's false righteousness is exposed. John says that's why the world hates us, but it's also the way the Spirit will work to convict the world. He'll convict the world through righteousness, through your life of sacrificial love. Let that motivate you to live that way. But that's not all. There's one more thing the Spirit will do that he'll convict the world about. Verse 11 tells us the Spirit convinces the world of its mistaken judgments of Christ because the final judgment has already begun for the world and its rulers. Look at verse 11. Who convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The paraclete will convince the world of its judgment. That is the world's faulty assessments of Christ. This word judgment here is the idea of evaluating or assessing. This is how the world judged Christ. Do not judge by appearances. Evaluate Christ by fleshly 
appearances, but judge, evaluate with right judgment. And the world misjudged Christ and it led to his crucifixion. But that wasn't an intellectual error. It sprang from deep in their hearts. A love affair with lies, a love affair with sin. It was devilish judgment of Christ. When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world about these false assessments of Christ. And why will he do that? Jesus says it's because the ruler of this world is judged. Who's the ruler of this world? Satan. The devil, we've seen it several times in this gospel. He rules the world because he holds sway in this world. But at the cross, Jesus gave a decisive blow to Satan and all those under his rule. The cross sealed the devil's doom. The devil's condemnation and judgment has already begun at the cross. And the point here is, is that as goes the ruler, so goes all under his dominion. And that means the world is in a serious condition. The judgment has already begun. The judgment began for the devil at the cross, the final judgment. And it's begun for all those under his dominion. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's begun. John 3.36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's why the Spirit does this work. So long as the world continues in these faulty judgments of Christ, it remains under the wrath and judgment that was ushered in at the cross. But in a gracious urgency, a gracious urgency, the Spirit's come to convince the world of these judgments so that it would repent before it is too late. And that's why the gift of the paraclete is good news for you. Because you've been left in this world. It won't spare you from suffering. It won't spare you from persecution. It will just equip you for everything you need to fulfill what you've been left here to do. So we're out of time. Let me just give you two points as you go. How should this change your life? Number one, be emboldened as you go into the world. You've been given the paraclete the helper, and he's powerfully working to convict the world and bring many to life through you. Number two, know what it means to live on this side of the cross. It's amazing to be living in the age that we are. New covenant ushered in. Amen. All right, let me pray and I will let you go. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Spirit and His gift. Thank you for His work in our hearts. If you had not done this, certainly we would not believe. We would remain in the world, but by sending the Spirit, you gave us a new heart. You did that divine heart surgery and brought us to life and made us part of your new people. And now through us, our lives of love and our faithful witness, you are working to bring many more to to life. And I ask that you would help us be bold now to go forth in faithful witness and joy at your goodness. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.